Hey there, if you're new to the show, a great way to follow our reporting when the podcast is over is NPR One. Hand-curated podcasts and audio stories ready when you are from NPR politics and beyond. Find it in your app store now, NPR O-N-E. Okay, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton hit the campaign trail in a big way after Labor Day. And in a televised forum, they gave us the closest thing we'll have to a debate until the real thing later this month. We will also answer a few of your questions and end the show, as we always do, with Can't Let It Go, when we all share something we cannot stop thinking about this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent with a cold. That's a nice, bassy voice you got there, Ron. I'm feeling it. I'm going to have to keep this cold all fall. I was telling them in the meeting, you're like the guy in Boys to Men with the cane who does a little breakdown mid-song with a low voice. What does he sing? How does he? Hey, girl. (laughs) (laughs) It's Barry. (laughs) Oh, man. Thank you, Barry. National treasure, Ron Elving. Hey, back to work. All right. Post-Labor Day, the campaign seemed to kick into a new gear. We've got barely two months until Election Day. There is a lot to talk about, especially uh, two of you folks are in the booth today. Scott and Tamara, you both began the week on the same tarmac in Cleveland with two candidates for president. That's right. What happened? Presidential race was like in all of like 10 square feet for a a couple (laughs) hours uh, on Monday. It was wild. Yeah. I was waiting for the Hillary Clinton plane to arrive Mm -hmm. when... I saw the Donald Trump plane oh, arrive, snap. and then we go out on to the tarmac to wait again for the Clinton plane as the Clinton plane is taxiing in, and there's also the Mike Pence plane. No way. And then later, I'm in the Trump press bus coming back to the airport so we can leave, and we had to pull over because Hillary Clinton's motorcade, with Tamara in it, I assume, goes by oh. us. So just all sorts of crossing in Ohio on Monday. Cleveland is the place to be. Yes, All right, so we'll get more to all of that later and talk about uh, the race possibly getting closer as these candidates keep campaigning. But first, the big story, Wednesday night's NBC Commander-in-Chief Forum. Uh, Each candidate got half an hour separately with moderator Matt Lauer. They took questions from him and the audience on military and foreign policy. The audience was mostly veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Let's start with some of the newsier bits of this forum, which came, who'd have thunk, from Donald Trump, who actually went second. Clinton went first. But first, uh, Trump, who in the course of his half hour, praised Russian President Vladimir Putin. Well, he does have an 82% approval rating, according to the different pollsters, who, by the way, some of them are based right here. Look, Trump also stood by his claim that he knows more about ISIS than some U.S. top generals. Do you know more about ISIS than they do? I think under the leadership of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, the generals have been reduced to rubble. He also said that he learned something from the body language of the people who gave him a classified intelligence briefing that made him question the president's leadership. I was very, very surprised in almost every instance. And I could tell I have pretty good with the body language. I could tell they were not happy. Our leaders did not follow what they were recommending. And then also Trump defended a tweet that he wrote in 2013 about sexual assault in the military. You tweeted this, quote, 26,000 unreported sexual assaults in the military, only 238 convictions. What did these geniuses expect when they put men and women together? Well, it is, it, is a, it is a correct tweet. There are many people that think that that's absolutely correct. And so there's clearly a lot to unpack here. Trump going to Trump. What do we make of his performance last night? 
Well, let's start with the thing that's gotten the most reaction the next day, and that is the remark Donald Trump made about Vladimir Putin being a stronger leader than Barack Obama, being somebody who in his system was a better leader. And uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, an expression of preference for the leadership style and perhaps leadership success, uh, at least in his own terms, of Vladimir Putin. This is the sort of thing that strikes some of us as extraordinary. Yeah. Because uh, since 1945, uh, the United States has been in a more or less adversarial position with Russia after the end of World War II. Uh, They called it the Cold War for a very long time. There were a lot of hot parts of that war. And we have been building up a military establishment and a, a degree of military might unmatched in human history, largely because of the Russians, largely because we were getting ready uh, for whatever aggression the Russians might launch. So you have a Republican nominee criticizing the U.S. military and praising the Russian president. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like a weird thing. Yes. I mean, can we just say that that it's is weird. out of out of out of protocol? Yeah. And, and all these things have been happening for a while. And this really struck me earlier this week. I was in Greenville, North Carolina, where Trump talked about some of these military issues as kind of a preview for this forum. And he uh, he criticized the Iraq war, the Af- uh, the Afghanistan war, saying um, we need to stop forcing democracy down the throats of, of countries that don't want it. And the crowd in North Carolina cheered loudly. And then he said something about Putin. And he said, uh, wouldn't it, it wouldn't be so bad if America got along with Russia better, would it? And the crowd cheered it. And I was like, so here's a crowd in a very staunchly military corner of the United States cheer, saying that we should not spread democracy and 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 cheering the idea of being better allies with Russia. And these are two things that that, that crowd typically in, in other years would have the exact opposite viewpoint. But let's remember just four years ago in their first debate uh, between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, Mitt Romney said the biggest threat to the United States in the world was Russia. And people kind of laughed. And people Democrats thought, laughed. yeah, a lot of Democrats, Democrats said, gee, laughed. come on. I mean, you know, are you really going back to that Cold War stuff, Mitt? You know, I mean, we don't really worry that much about Russia anymore. Here we are four years later. And actually what Donald Trump is proposing is that we ally ourselves with Russia on behalf of the Assad government in Syria and smash ISIS together. ISIS, of course, is one of the several different kinds of forces that are fighting against Assad. So to me, the thing that really stood out was the discussion of what Donald Trump would do about ISIS, this big threat that he talks about all the time on the campaign trail. And for a while, he's been saying that he has a plan to defeat ISIS, but he's not going to say what it is because he would. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to like tip your hand to ISIS. So then yesterday before the forum, he announced that his plan was to ask the generals once he becomes president, to get back to him within 30 days with a very good plan. The generals who might be rubble? Those generals. Although so, they may be different. So they Matt, might be different generals, his generals. Right. So Matt Lauer asked about that last night. So is the plan you've been hiding this whole time asking someone else for their plan? No. But when I do come up with a plan that I like and that perhaps agrees with mine or maybe doesn't, I may love what the generals come back with. I will continue. But you have your own plan. I have a plan, but I want to be, I don't want to, look, I have a very substantial chance of winning. Make America great again. We're going to make America great again. I have a substantial chance of winning. If I win, 
I don't want to broadcast to the enemy exactly what my but plan is. And let me tell you, if I like maybe a combination of my plan and the general's plan or the general's plan, if I like their plan, Matt, I'm not going to call you up and say, Matt, we have a great plan. This is what Obama does. We're going to leave Iraq on a certain but day. But you're going to convene a panel of, judge, of generals, and you've already said you know more about ISIS than those generals. Well, they'd probably be different generals, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm looking See, at the generals. Even in that, he today, said, I have a plan. I don't have a plan. Well, Richard Nixon, in, in 1968, said he had a secret plan to solve the Vietnam War. That worked. And, well, uh, he probably didn't have any sort of a special plan other than to pursue a somewhat elongated withdrawal, essentially, and the draft and the thing that was causing all the real unhappiness in the country and, and motivating a lot of the anti-war movement, and then slowly Vietnamize the war, as we used to say, and that would, you know, lower the decibel level, and eventually he could pull out. And, of course, the plan also included bombing the Dickens out of a lot of other countries around Vietnam so as to discourage uh, the Viet Cong from going there. It, it, it nonetheless was a pretty successful strategy in 68 because he could say, I'm going to tell you once I'm president, I'm not going to tip my hand beforehand. So there's there's some of that Nixon 68 strategy here. But this is not 68. And if you look for what Trump has said about uh, confronting ISIS, it's been all over the map. I mean, he talks about aggressively going in with, with ground troops. And yet at the same time, he regularly talks about the fact that the United States is overextended and needs to scale back and focus on itself. So it's hard to square a lot of what he said at various different points. Speaking of things where he's been on a few sides of an issue, yes. his support or lack of support of the Iraq war. Let's drill down a bit on that. Um, Trump has said that he did not support the war, but previously he said that he did support the war. Uh, we have tape of him last night. I was totally against the war in Iraq. From a, You can look at Esquire magazine from 04. You can look at before that. And I was against the war in Iraq because I said it's going to totally destabilize the Middle East, which it has. I, w- I was basically shouting at my TV saying, wait, 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 the Iraq war didn't start in 2004. It started in 2003. And, so, the, and the vote to authorize it was in 2002. So yeah. if you were against the war before the war, why are you pointing us back to an article from after the war had already started? And started to go sour and go south. Yeah. So on the Howard Stern show, September 11th, 2002, first reported by BuzzFeed, Trump said this. Are you for invading Iraq? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, I wish it was, I, I wish the first time it was done correctly. So there's a serious discrepancy that he wasn't pushed on last night, Scott. And he regularly criticizes Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton for withdrawing forces from Iraq, saying that that paved the way for ISIS. Trump actually goes beyond that and says the two of them founded ISIS by this move. But Trump consistently is on the record uh, in that window saying the United States needed to pull out of Iraq. And this just hasn't stuck. Like, we know that there are several issues where he's been on a few sides of it. Doesn't seem to stick. Right. Well, and there there was very serious criticism last night of the moderator, Matt Lauer, for not doing an instant fact check on that very easy thing about whether he was against the war before it started, which is something Trump has been claiming for months and months and months and months, and which fact checks, I mean, people are shouting from the rooftops, still not true. Yeah. The biggest thing that stuck out for me that I still can't figure out if it's weird or not is when he talked about his classified briefing um, at the forum last night. He said that in that classified briefing with U.S. leaders that he could tell by their body language uh, that they were not happy and that our leaders were not following what they were, I guess, recommending. Isn't the correct answer whenever you're asked about a classified briefing is 
it's classified. Especially, <laughs> especially when you're focusing a big part of your campaign, dinging your opponent for how she treats classified information. Yeah, it just felt weird. In the past, there have been briefings for presidential candidates. The nominees of both parties have been getting these briefings now for a number of presidential cycles because the idea is they should be brought up to speed about what's going on in the world, about what our defense posture is around the world, where our troops are, as much information as can be prudently shared with them, way above what any normal citizen would get because they are on the verge, perhaps, of being commander-in-chief. All candidates, to my knowledge, who have received these briefings have been exceedingly, exceedingly reticent to talk about them or to say anything about what happened in those briefings. This was, from that perspective, truly breaking new ground. All right, just to cap Trump here, the president was asked about all of this in Laos today. He again called Donald Trump unqualified and said Trump holds, quote, contradictory, uninformed, or outright wacky policy opinions. With that note, Hillary Clinton was at this thing, too. Uh, She spent actually the first 10 minutes or so of her half hour defending herself on the never-ending, not-gonna-go-away, it's-here-it's-here-it's-here email issue. This was Matt Lauer's second question. We have the exchange. Why wasn't it more than a mistake? Why wasn't it disqualifying if you want to be commander-in-chief? Well, Matt, first of all, as I have said repeatedly, uh, it was a mistake uh, to have a personal account. I would certainly not do it again. I make no excuses for it. Uh, It was something that should not have been done. But the real question is the handling of classified material, which is, I think, what the implication of your question was. And for all the viewers watching you tonight, I have a lot of experience dealing with classified material, starting when I was on the Senate Armed Services Committee, going into the four years as Secretary of State. Classified material has a header which says top secret, secret, confidential, nothing. And I will, I will repeat this, and this is verified in the report by the Department of Justice. None of the emails sent or received by me had such a header. So when she's explaining and explaining and explaining, she's not really winning. I agree. It's, um, I get more confused. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I think that she feels like she was within the law and she feels like if she could maybe just explain it one more time, that maybe people would finally understand that she was telling the truth. But does or that something. ever work? Like, does that ever work for her? She can't. Like, all of the explanations she's given have not worked. You've you've heard them all, Tamara. You've been following them all. <laughs> I've heard them all. What would be a winning way to conquer this thing? I mean, basically, what she has said that has been effective is it was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. Mm. I wouldn't do it again. I've learned a valuable lesson. Shut it down. That wasn't last night. And I think there's a lot of things going on here that are working against Clinton and making this such a such a drag on her campaign. You see uh, the approval ratings. You see what people think about this. It is a drag on her campaign. First of all, it's the drip, 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 year and a half plus nature of this, which is partially Clinton's fault and also partially just the nature of the FBI releasing things at certain points, Judicial Watch releasing things at certain points. And, but, and we should say Judicial Watch is a group that is a conservative yes. group and that, they exists, want a slow trickle. that exists to release information that would make Hillary Clinton look bad. And they would love to have stuff keep coming out until Election Day, right? And it will. But I think the other the other point is that the parts are all worse than the whole here when you take them out and you talk about them separately. They all sound really bad. 
the fact that staffers were breaking her old uh, smartphones with hammers. The fact that uh, a an IT contractor used a, a software program called BleachBit to delete the emails after the first uh, oh, thing I had came heard out. About that one. Oh, See, yeah. that sounds really shady. That does that, sound that's shady. actually like a really commonly used software to oh. to, to delete uh, okay. files and kind of break them up. But the fact is, all that stuff sounds really suspicious. But I think it's all all very like par for the course, common stuff in the world of of classified information. And there's also the fact that Clinton was talking about in that soundbite we just heard. A lot of this stuff was designated one level or another of classification after the fact, not at the time uh. that she was looking at it, you know? But but it's hard to explain that and say that and, and have yourself come out ahead. All right, so what else stuck out about Clinton at this forum Wednesday night? Tam? To me, the, the thing that stood out was the way she talked about defeating ISIS. And, and with some level of specificity, but also making a promise not to have ground troops in Iraq and Syria. Can we hear the tape? We are not putting ground troops into Iraq ever again, and we're not putting ground troops into Syria. We're going to defeat ISIS without committing American ground troops. So those are the kinds of decisions we have to make on a case-by-case basis. So my thing with, like, whenever there's pledges of ground troops or this troops or that troops, they find these workarounds, and they end up with, like, training troops on the ground and, you know, advisory troops on the ground. How seriously should we take this promise, Tamara? Well, all this talk of boots on the ground, boots on the ground, we're not going to put boots on the ground. And what they mean by that, but what they're not saying is... We're not going to have a big old battalion of army guys and Marines. Yeah. We're going to have and do have and just don't talk about it that much. A lot of special operators training, uh, doing more than training, helping with positioning for bombing, like actually people in danger out in Iraq and Syria and also now Libya. It's real. It's happening. So what, what Hillary Clinton says is, yeah, yeah, yeah. That I'm on board with. But what I'm saying, though not being very clear about, is not a big bunch of ground troops. No invasion. No invasion. No no replay of 2003. We're not coming back in force. We're not coming back with those kinds of units, those kinds of numbers, that kind of equipment. We're not invading and we're not looking like we're taking over your country. What we're trying to do is defeat ISIS without giving ISIS an excuse to grow everywhere else. And everything she says about what's going on there now, she's still responding to her vote of support to authorize the war in Iraq, right? And she was asked about that. She was asked about it and she said that was a mistake. And she owned the vote, as she did in 2008, when she really paid a very heavy price for it. There are those, those who would believe that without her vote for the war in Iraq in 2002, it would not have been possible for Barack Obama to find the leverage to defeat her in the primaries in yeah. 2007, 2008. And uh, there's a lot of legitimacy in that argument. So, yes, she has acknowledged it as a mistake for a long time, paid a very heavy political price for it, and owned it again last night, and then went on to talk about what she may have learned from that mistake. Well, and the weird thing here is you have someone who voted to authorize the use of force in Iraq who's been taking a beating on it for Ever years since. and is continuing to. And Donald Trump has the benefit of not having that record. And then even look at the records that we examine to see their stances on Iraq. For Hillary Clinton, we look to her vote in the Senate to authorize force. For Trump, we look to what he said on the Howard Stern show. Because it was just something he said on the Howard Stern show. All right, time for a break. We'll be right back. 
we'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Hey, it's Guy Raz here from the TED Radio Hour, and I'm really excited to tell you about another podcast I'm hosting. It's called How I Built This, and it's a show about the most amazing innovators and entrepreneurs and the stories behind the companies and movements they built. The show launches on September 12th. You can find it at npr.org slash podcasts on iTunes or on the NPR One app. All right, we're back. Let's talk about the week on the trail. Like we said, Tam, you began this week with the Clinton campaign. The big news is that she talks to you and the press on a plane, and you were with her on that plane. Yeah. So, so my big question with her doing a lot more press these days, talking to you guys, traveling with you guys, from the press avail she's done this week, there have been no major faux pas or gaffes. Yeah. She's kind of okay at it. Why did she wait so long to do this? I don't know, but once she pulled off the Band-Aid, man, she just went right? for it. Right, there was one this morning. Right, no, she did one on Monday. Yeah. Then she did one on Tuesday. Both of them were about 25 minutes huh. long. And then today, she did one on the tarmac She's on a roll. with a lectern so that you can be absolutely certain to say it was a, a press conference. conference. Yeah, that was funny because Trump had been for the last few weeks every day saying, this is day 270 whatever without a Clinton press conference. And then they kept doing it after she did the plane gaggle saying, well, that gaggle doesn't count. So I thought it was funny today, today she had the lectern out. Like, She's like, I see your gaggle and I raise you a lectern. Yep. <laughs> that is exactly what it was. And we, it was we actually also lectern, not podium. Good job, everybody. You know, well, words been, mean things. We've been trained. For those listeners that don't know, you stand on a podium, you stand at we're behind one. Or behind. Yes. My high yes. school German teacher would be very happy we made that distinction. Um, so, Tamara, you were there for most of these. Uh, what was she asked about? She was asked about a very wide range of things. Of course, her emails. Of course, the Clinton Foundation. But also, news of the day. She was asked about the Federal Reserve. She was asked about the U.S. relationship with the Philippines. She was asked about Syria and, and the conflict there. It, just a, it was a very wide-ranging couple of press conferences. And... You know, I have to say, I came away from it. There wasn't, like, a lot of news, like, strictly yeah. speaking, news that came out of it. The news was that it happened. Yes. But also, this is the thing that we wanted as reporters. We wanted to be able to get a candidate on record on matters of substance. And the more she does it, the more we can just sort of ask about news of the day, ask about a policy matter, and not have to always ask about I mean, the, the controversies will always be there. But if she does a 25-minute press conference, we can ask about other stuff. We had another big update in campaign versus media world this week. Uh, and that was the Donald Trump campaign had had a blacklist on, on several outlets, including the Washington Post, uh, from, from being credentialed at their events. Now, these, these outlets still cover Donald Trump oh, yeah. by either watching on TV or just going in as regular audience members to cover this. Or Donald Trump just calling them on the phone. That, too. But the campaign actually ended this practice this week. The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, a couple others are now welcome to join us in our press pen 
uh, and be credentialed for the these Trump events. Okay, what else can we say about this week? This is the beginning of basically a two-month sprint the candidates are going to be on throughout all the battleground states. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are approximately 13 battleground states. Uh, six of them, approximately, are going to get all the attention and all of the, uh, all are the, of the frequent flyer miles. Oh, okay, this is going to be my Rick Perry moment. Ohio. Pennsylvania, Florida, Florida, North Colorado, Carolina. North Carolina. North Carolina. That's five. New Hampshire. Six. That's right. And and you can probably, you know, pencil in some others around there because some people are still talking about Michigan. Uh, some people are still talking about Virginia. And to many people's amazement, the Trump campaign has just made a major ad buy, a couple of million dollars just mm. in Virginia to get their ads out. And this is a state where the Clinton people have actually pulled their ads because they figure they've got it. Yeah, during the Olympics, I was watching broadcast television in Virginia, saw a lot of Clinton ads. Last night, watching that forum, mm -hmm. so many Trump ads. So many and Trump ads. you live ads. in? I live in Virginia. Uh -huh. And speaking of Virginia, our colleague Jessica Taylor has done some reporting about ad spending in battleground states. And although Donald Trump has begun spending like those ads in Virginia... It is still a very disproportionate situation. So Hillary Clinton, according to Jess's reporting, has spent about $127 million on ads in swing states. Donald Trump has spent $18 million. You know what? It shows. I feel like whenever I turn on my TV, I see that Hillary Clinton ad with those kids. Watching Donald yes, Trump. I yes. I literally see it twice a day, every day. I was surprised that I was... Um I spent the night in Ohio on Monday. I was watching uh, local news in Cleveland. I saw just as many Donald Trump ads as Hillary Clinton ads, and I watched huh. for about an hour. And that is Jeopardy. a sign of Donald Trump is beginning to spend some money. Yeah. yeah another thing that happened this week is that uh, a couple national polls came out that showed uh, a more tight race on the national level than before. You know, Hillary Clinton had had, had patted her lead a lot over the course of August uh, for a wide range of reasons. Looks like it's tightening up by a lot of different indicators. These are the national average polls. Though. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing, though. Just talking about swing states and talking about where the campaigns were this week. Here's where Donald Trump's been so far. Uh, he's been to Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Uh, those are all key states, and those are all states where, if you look at the average of polls on the state level, he's trailing in every single one of them. North Carolina's probably the closest. Ohio is close, too. But Virginia and Pennsylvania, Clinton has pretty wide leads in most polls. And she's had it for a while, right? So this yeah. is my thing when we say... Oh, look at the national poll. The numbers are getting closer. The race is getting tighter. What's really going to matter with the Electoral College is what the numbers and the voters say in these key battleground states. And in many of these, like Scott said, she's held a lead for a while consistently. So is this narrative of a closer race a misstatement or not getting at the whole truth? There is really no way you're going to get people to listen to a story or read a story that starts out race where it was last time you cared. True. Or forget about it. <laughs> or a podcast. Or there's no, there, you know, there's no suspense here. That said, there are indicators that all of the negatives of the last couple of weeks for Hillary Clinton, which have been substantial yeah. and which have been repetitive, have had an effect. It's at a point now after Labor Day, when a certain number of people start paying more attention, we'll see another group of people start paying attention in October, after the first debate on September 26th, and then, as they say, traditionally after the World Series. That is, if the World Series gets done in October, which it should. And that then brings in a whole last group of people who hadn't really been paying attention, and they can move the polls a little bit too. But if you look back over the last 30, 40 years, 
generally speaking, where things have been, 1980 being an exception, generally speaking, where things are on Labor Day is where things wind up. I want to just take us back before we go to our next break to a time and place far, far, far away last Saturday in Detroit. (laughs) Donald Trump was there. I was there, too. We both were in a black church. Um, One of you has been to a black church before. (laughs) (laughs) She's here all week. Why not? She's here all week. Sam, how was your first time in a black church? (laughs) Well, let me tell you. There was so much that I saw on this trip. And for those that follow me on Twitter, I live tweeted the heaven out of it. Um, (laughs) But I got to say, what stood out to me the most was the emotional tone of Donald Trump in this space. It felt like and it looked like Donald Trump was out of his element and a little scared. I saw this man be very humble, be very appreciative of folks welcoming him in, to be reflective and thoughtful. And it was a side of this person that I had never seen before. So much of what he projects is not being vulnerable at all. And in this church, he was just another white guy trying to not screw it up in a black church. (laughs) We talk past each other not to each other, and those who seek office do not do enough to step into the community and learn what is going on. They don't know. They have no clue. I'm here today to learn so that we can together remedy injustice in any form. And there was one moment where he's trying to clap to the music, and one of the true tests of if you're down or not is whether you clap on one and three or two and four. Donald Trump clapped on beats one, two, three. Three and, and four. four. What does that sound like? Is that just like was he just like? <laughs> the song was a little slower, so it was just he was he was he was he yeah. was expressing his heart. Yeah, he was shaking hands and hugging people. And at one point, he took a, a like woman's baby, beautiful little Afroed baby, and he holds the kid up like it's Simba in the Lion King. <laughs> you he love just, the Lion King I loved so much. it, but it was just like that all day. So, I have to say, it's interesting because I've been to a lot of black churches with yeah. Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And she's different in church, too. Yes. And I never see her more comfortable yeah. and more, like, in her element and, and almost, like, she just hits the tone. She acts a, like they get her. Yeah, and, and she always says the same thing when she goes in. Blessed be the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice yeah. in it. She is more comfortable yes. in a black church than she is yes. in a gymnasium at a yeah. rally. Yeah, but also it's like the thing about out- outreach to different communities is that it's actually not that hard. You show up, you say hi, and you listen. And a lot of them are just be glad that you came. That's my only thing. Just show up. George H.W. Bush used to say 90% of life is just showing up. Yeah. Uh, I know that line was you know, used elsewhere <laughs> and, and earlier. In a different context. In a different yeah. context. But but he used he was attracted to that as, as a notion, and he used to quote it from time to time. And, you know, in the world of politics, it's hard to argue that some proportion, some large proportion is a matter of showing up. Yeah. All right. Detroit, you guys were a great host. I like your city. Thanks for being cool to me. One more quick break. We'll be right back with Listener Mail and Can't Let It Go. Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from ABC, premiering its highly anticipated new series, Designated Survivor. Kiefer Sutherland stars as a low-level cabinet member who is suddenly thrust into the presidency after a catastrophic attack on the government. Hailed by TV Guide as fall's buzziest new show, designated survivor Mark Sutherland's compelling return to TV. Part political drama, part conspiracy thriller, 
Designated Survivor premieres Wednesday, September 21st at 10, 9 central on ABC. Okay, we've got a couple of quick letters today. Just a reminder, please send us your questions, written or recorded or sung, to nprpolitics at npr.org. We're also going to save a few of our recorded questions for our next Monday Mail episode. That'll, of course, be out on Monday. All right. Okay, here's a question from Mark. Hi, Mark. He writes, quote, Hello, big fan of the podcast. I've loved your episodes as we near the election. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the press's coverage of Trump's payments to the attorney general in Florida who is investigating Trump University. It seems to me the press has been focused on the Clinton Foundation, while the Trump U story is a much bigger, more blatant story. Your thoughts? Thanks, Mark. Ron, you have feelings on this one. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks for this particular letter, because we were going to talk about this elsewhere in the podcast, but we decided to save it for your letter. Uh, This is about the Attorney General of Florida, Pam Bondi, who has uh, been a Trump supporter for some time. Uh, She, some years ago, asked for a contribution for her reelection campaign, and uh, Donald Trump gave her $25,000. This was about the same time that some states were considering whether or not to sue Trump University for uh, some of its activities, and a lot of people were upset about uh, having lost their money to Trump University and didn't think they had gotten much for it. Uh, There is a lawsuit that is pending in federal court now on that very matter. But the state of Florida did not join in, and so the story emerged that they had this relationship and that there had been a $25,000 contribution from one of the organs of the larger Trump universe. And uh, this came back about a week ago when David Ferentold of the Washington Post discovered that there had actually been a fine paid by that one Trump entity, a $2,500 fine on a $25,000 contribution because they weren't supposed to make such contributions to political candidates. Well, because the Trump Foundation gave money to... a campaign. That's a Well, no-no. it was trying to give money to uh, an organization supporting Pam Bondi's campaign, but... When they filed their taxes, they had indicated that it had gone to a different organization that had a slightly different name in that Kansas. wouldn't have been a political In country. Kansas? In Kansas. A, a, a group called Justice for All. And the Bondi organization was called And Justice for All. Oh. So, of course, it was just a natural mistake, right? It was just a little bit of natural confusion. Well, you can reach your own conclusions about this. But the real question, and I think this is Mark's question, is why is this handled in such a different way, and why has it been handled in such a different way for months and months, uh, than all of the innuendo or all the implications that have been attached to the relationships that the Clintons had with donors and various and sundry other folks, and what that might have meant for those donors when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, the Clinton Foundation issue, which also obviously ties back into some of the emails as well. So all of the fascination and the narrative that is attached in terms of trustworthiness to Hillary Clinton has had to do with the inadequacy, the secrecy, the inadequacy of her answers having to do with the Clinton Foundation and the emails. And at the same time, people are willing to accept what were, shall we say, at least dubious explanations from Pam Bondi and from Trump and from Trump's people with respect to this $25,000. The bottom line being in the end, Pam Bondi did not join the lawsuit and did not investigate further the uh, Trump University in Florida. And then we learned from Huffington Post reporting that Donald Trump actually hosted a fundraiser, at least one fundraiser for Pam Bondi Hmm. at Mar-a-Lago, his resort, and charged a lower fee to Bondi than he's been charging to his own campaign for events that he's had at Mar-a-Lago. And here's the thing with all this. Uh, Donald Trump this week, when he was asked about this, said, 
No, I just gave money to Pam Bondi because I think she's a, a great attorney general and I really support her work. That contradicts what, what he, he said, said before. over and over and over again um, when it comes to the Clinton Foundation and when it comes to contributions in general. His line all along has been he gives money because he expects favors down the line. I will tell you that our system is broken. I give to many people. Before this, before two months ago, I was a businessman. I give to everybody. When they call, I give. And you know what? When I need something from them, two years later, three years later, I call them. They are there for me. So and that's get? a broken system. So and th- that was during a primary debate. But, but this story has not had anything like the kind of prominence or the kind of legs that the trustworthiness stories about Hillary Clinton have had. And I think it's worth everyone pondering for a moment whether or not we don't judge these people by just terribly different standards. Okay, last question comes to us from Melanie in New York City. Hi, Melanie. She writes, I have a question regarding voter ID laws. I am a, quote, millennial, unquote. So this might be due to the fact I did not live through the civil rights era, but I still don't really understand all of the politics around voter ID laws. Why is this such a big deal? You need identification to fly, to drive, to buy cigarettes and alcohol. So even as someone who is very liberal, I really don't get the controversies. Why don't we focus on providing disenfranchised people with IDs rather than fighting these rules? Many thanks, Melanie. So, Melanie, when you say I did not live through the civil rights era, you hit the nail on the head. There is a strong, deep and long history of disenfranchisement of black and brown voters in America. And many, many people see voter ID laws as one of the last vestiges of that system. Uh, There were times in our history where to be a black person and go vote, you had to correctly name the number of jelly beans in a jar. You had to list various parts of U.S. history and name all the presidents. There's a certain thinking that any undue impediment to voting is a continuation of that legacy. And with recent cases where this thing is an issue, it's in states that have a history of disenfranchising black voters. That's all true. And but there were something like 30 states that that tightened up their voter requirements uh, in recent years and uh, certainly more than the the classic yes. states of of yes. uh, Jim Crow. And many of them made this exact same argument that Melanie has made, which is to say, gee, you needed picture ID to get on an airplane. Is voting less important? No, the fact is voting is more important, and it is a constitutional right, which riding on an airplane is not. Yeah. And it's neither is buying not. and neither is buying cigarettes or alcohol. Uh, and as a constitutional right, it enjoys a certain kind of protection and a certain kind of presumption. And the argument for voter IDs is usually, well, otherwise people can vote fraudulently. The evidence of people actually in person attempting to vote fraudulently is it is so small. It's it's in the lightning strike category. And there's also a lot of evidence um, that a lot of this is typically politically motivated. Uh, I was covering the Pennsylvania State House when they passed a voter ID law, which was later thrown out by the courts. But uh, there was a lot of attention. One of the Republican leaders who pushed that was caught on tape saying. Mitt Romney's going to win Pennsylvania because of our new voter ID law. So the thing is, it's like there is a history around this. And as Ron said, this is bigger than driving a car. This is bigger than flying on an airplane. It's bigger than buying cigarettes. So there you go. All right. That's the mail. Please keep your questions coming. You may hear them in our next episode of Monday Mail, which will be out on Monday. And now it's time for Can't Let It Go, when we all share one thing we cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. 
Low voice, Ron. You got this. What is Aleppo? What is Aleppo? Do tell us. What's Aleppo? All right. Uh, we just have to do this because it's just one of those things the that thing. just landed on oh, us. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it, it, it happened on uh, the Morning Joe show, Joe Scarborough's show. MSNBC. MSNBC. And uh, the panel is sitting around. Mike Barnacle asks Gary Johnson, the nominee of the Libertarian Party, what about Aleppo? What would you do about Aleppo? What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About? Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. Oh. Well, I, I think he, he, he was not clear that it was a geographical place. I think, like, all right. I'm going to be contrarian here. I think you should know what Aleppo is if you're running for president. That's not contrarian. That's not contrarian. My contrarian point is that being said, the the whole cast of the show kind of had these sneery looks at him even before they asked the question, and I felt like that was their goal there to be like. No, 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 no. You're saying that they knew he wasn't going to know this. Whoa. I'm just saying they're kind of they had their arms folded. They were all kind of looking but down their fair. noses at him. But it's fair for any journalist to assume that when they ask the nominee of a party running for president, okay. he's going to know Aleppo. It, it's 2012, and Herman Cain is briefly leading the pack oh. of Republican candidates for the nomination. And he is, actually it was 2011, it was leading into 2012, and he sits down for an interview at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and Craig Gilbert asks him, what about Libya? Now, I think we know from what we've seen since, that Libya has become a it's big a thing. deal. Yeah. It's been a big deal. And at the time, it was a big deal. And Herman Cain looked up at the ceiling and went, Libya. Mm-hmm. And in this case, Gary Johnson had a similar problem. And we must say that in the immediate hours after Oh, this, man, it blew up. It not only blew up, but but the people continued to interview him about it. And, of course, here you're a guy who's been dying for a little bit of attention. You so got it. You can get into the debate by getting up to 15% in the polls. And so he has to answer every interviewer. And all the interviewer wants to ask him is, hey, man, how could you not know? And his answers have not been particularly satisfying. And who knows, given everything else we've seen this year, maybe his poll numbers will go up. On that note, Tam, what can you not let go this week? One, over the weekend, I was at my brother's wedding, and he's my only brother, and it was wonderful. I've seen some video that you showed me. It seemed like a fun time. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, it could go viral. (laughs) His, His now wife walked down the aisle to a... A song. They're big fans of RuPaul's Drag Race, and she walked down the aisle. She sashayed. I love it. She turned around. She sashayed back, and then, um, and then there was like a more serious song, "Happily Ever After." My brother was just like crying. Oh. This is fabulous. Congrats to your brother. Yeah. So congrats to my brother. But that's not my real can't let it go. My real can't let it go is Kelly Ayotte. Senator from New Hampshire yeah. has a tough race on her hands, and she has a new ad. Okay, it's not that new. I've been away from the show for a little while, but she has a new ad. Here it is. Thanks, buddy. I'm Kelly Ayotte, and when I take the plate for New Hampshire, I'm up against a political machine that plays dirty. So, what you can't see, because this is audio, is she's there, she's at a baseball field, she's got her fat. That's why I'm batting for good-paying jobs. Protect Social Security and, and she's hitting softballs. And hitting softballs. So, two things about this. One, this is not the first female member of Congress to uh, do an ad just like that. Who else did that? Heidi Heitkamp, who is the senator from North Dakota. This was an extremely effective ad huh. when she was running. When I decided to run for the Senate, I knew they'd try and hit me with all sorts of stuff. 
she goes to a batting cage. Uh-huh. This is the same ad, basically. This is basically the same ad. Highly effective. <laughs> I approve this message because I'm just getting warmed up. So they both play softball yeah. in the Congressional Women's Softball Game. Which you are in, right? Tam had yes. a key RBI this Absolutely. year. Absolutely. And the you winning won, run, right? The winning run knocked in by our own Tamara Keith. Yes. Which is not I what I was it. fishing for, but yes. Since ah. we're on the subject. <laughs> Since you guys brought it up. <laughs> but Kelly Ayotte is a very serious softball player. She is the catcher from the women from the congressional team. I am the catcher from the media team. Wait, you're the catcher? I did not know that. Yeah. Anyway, she, she was very, like, all game long, it didn't seem like she was having very much fun. She was very serious. She is a slugger. She wow. is. She's so both she and Heidi Heitkamp, if anybody can make a campaign ad hitting balls great distances yeah it's legit like fact check true sam what about you so i am a big fan of a good roast and comedy central usually has a really good roast every now and then the roast of justin bieber was classic this was like a year or two ago beautiful and there was one of donald trump too yeah i remember that so this week there was a roast of rob lowe uh known for his role in parks and rec also a member of the brat pack West Wing. West Wing. Yeah. yeah it's a big one. It's a big one. So he he's getting roasted this week on Comedy Central, but a good portion of the roast turned into a roast of conservative firebrand and culture. It was really weird. I guess they're friends. I don't know. She was there. But over the course of the night, lots of the folks on stage made some really, really disparaging comments, not just about her, but her gender, and it kind of made me squirm. One man called her the C-word. Another person said that the only time anyone will ever be happy about her is the Mexican that digs her grave. Oh, my um, One person said that she should kill herself. Um, even Jewel got on stage. The singer Jewel, who seems to not have a mean bone in her body. Was she also in the She was roast? in the roast. She said this. I do want to say, first of all, as a feminist, uh, I can't support everything that's being said up here tonight. But uh, as somebody that hates Ann Coulter, I'm delighted. So, I mean, one, I'm speaking here as a man, so I, 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 I can't speak to all the gender angles of it. But I know that it just felt very bad and weird and strange to see. So, if you ever get invited to a roast or to roast someone on Comedy Central, don't go. Think about it. <laughs> don't go. Don't go. All right, Scott, what can you not like? Uh, so something a little, little happier, a little lighter. Um, so Barack Obama is on an inter- international trip He's this like week. He's everywhere this He's week. He's everywhere. So he was in Laos uh, at the end of this week, given a press conference where our own Elise Hugh asked a couple questions. So that was exciting. Um, but uh, just these pictures that popped up online yesterday of Barack Obama walking around Laos wearing shades <laughs> with, like, the first three buttons of his shirt unbuttoned, <laughs> just looking relaxed. And drinking from this gigantic coconut, like bigger than his head coconut, that they'd hacked open and uh, dropped a straw in. He's just walking around, sipping coconut milk. And it looked like he had it for a while. Like, I didn't see it in real time, but I saw him in all these different places, just walking around, (laughs) looking relaxed, talking to people, but just carrying this enormous coconut. He looked very happy and relaxed. Good for him. Obama is like that student in high school who knows that regardless of, like, the last semester grades, they're going to be valedictorian. (laughs) <laughs> so they just stop caring. He's already yeah. gotten into He's, college. Exactly. Yeah, he is definitely. <laughs> he is checked college. out of the presidential hotel. 
All right, that's a wrap for this week. We'll be back next week. Do not forget to send us your questions to nprpolitics at npr.org. Also, please leave us an iTunes review if you like the show. We really hope you like the show. And follow our coverage on your local public radio station and on the NPR One app. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent and feeling better. Aww. Aww. Thank you all for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.